Welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up Close and Personal with the Real People Behind the Hits and Misses in Boston's Venture Capital Big Time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. Now, this week, we're going to do something short and sweet, what I like to call a a holiday quickie, because, you know, who doesn't like a holiday quickie? Uh, I spent some time with G20 member Jim Hernstein last week for one of my more interesting conversations with, uh, I have to say, one of the more interesting people I've encountered in my travels To say Jim's not your typical entrepreneur would be a dramatic understatement. First off, he has a PhD in astrophysics from Harvard. And in astrophysics circles, he's best known as part of the team that in 1995 used an $86 million radio telescope spread from Hawaii to the Virgin Islands to find the first black hole hidden at the center of a galaxy. Holy shit. While you process that, let me read you how the New York Times covered his mind-bending revelation at the time. A gigantic concentration of mass equivalent to 40 million suns has been detected at the heart of a distant galaxy. It is a region of incredible turbulence surrounded by a maelstrom of gas and dust generating powerful x-rays and twisted jets of gas emerging at speeds of 400 miles a second. It is almost certainly a black hole. If there was any lingering doubt, astronomers said today that this dense mass in the center of the spiral galaxy NGC 4258 was, quote, compelling evidence, unquote, for the reality of black holes in many galactic cores. Predicted by Einstein's general theory of relativity, black holes are masses of collapsed stellar material so dense that nothing, not even light, can escape their gravitational fields, which is why they have been so maddeningly elusive. Wow. Mind equals blown. And, and that is not where Jim Hernstein's story ends. Now, rather than rest on his laurels as a tenured professor in some ivy-covered sanctuary, Jim signed on to apply his remarkable skills in math and physics to, wait for it, one of the world's most successful quantitative hedge funds, Renaissance Technologies. Now, Wikipedia's entry on Renaissance starts with this. Renaissance Technologies LLC is an East Setauket, New York-based American investment management firm founded in 1982 by James Simons, an award-winning mathematician and former Cold War codebreaker, which specializes in systematic trading using only quantitative models derived from mathematical and statistical analyses. Renaissance is one of the first highly successful hedge funds using quantitative training, known as quant hedge funds, that rely on powerful computers and sophisticated mathematics to guide investment strategies. In 1988, the firm established its most profitable portfolio, the Medallion Fund, which used an improved and expanded form of Leonard Blom's mathematical models, improved by algebraist James Axe, to explore correlations from which they could profit. Simons and Axe started a hedge fund and christened it Medallion in honor of the math awards that they'd won. Renaissance's flagship Medallion Fund, which is run mostly for fund employees, is famed for one of the best records in investing history, returning more than 35% annualized over a 20-year span. From 1994 through mid-2014, it averaged a 71.8% annual return. All right, let me say that again. 71.8% average Albert Einstein, whose theory of black holes, Jim and his team essentially proved, once said the most powerful force in the universe was actually compound interest. To give you a sense of that power, if I'd taken the $100 my grandparents gave me as a present when I graduated HBS in June of 1994, 
I'd have been able to withdraw $5 million from that same account 20 years later and still have enough left over to give a Ford Fusion loaded to the daughter who got her license that year. Even that's not the most interesting thing about Jim Hernstein. In his spare time, Jim's the chairman of an organization called Pivot, whose mission, based on a fundamental belief in the worth of all people and a moral responsibility to address the needs of the destitute, is to create a model system of universal access to quality care for Madagascar by a comprehensive health system strengthening in a region near the Rono Mafana National Park. That's right, Madagascar. Now, why the hell Madagascar? Why should anyone who could do a guest cameo on Billions spend his time trying to save people's lives on an island 8,600 miles from home? Those are the questions I asked Jim in the second segment of our interview, and a big part of the reason this particular conversation was so special to me and something I wanted to share during this uh, season of giving. All right. This special holiday quickie episode of How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio radically simple. And here now is my conversation with astrophysics superstar, hedge fund mathematical genius, and global philanthropist, Jim Hernstein. All right, I'm here with Jim Hernstein. We're at the uh, Renaissance Technologies here in Long Island, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us, Jim. Sure, my pleasure. So you're, you're one of the G20 members that I have not spent a lot of time with, but uh, you're uh, certainly highly, highly regarded by Bob and Bill, and um, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us here today. Great. Looking forward to it. So, um, you know, I, I want to help people kind of get to know you, and, and let's start from the very beginning. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up outside of, uh, outside of Boston, and uh, my family moved around. My dad was a professor at, uh, at Harvard, and so we moved around, sort of spiraled in towards Cambridge. What did he teach? Uh, he taught behavioral psychology. Right. And uh, you're either like a Metro West guy, a North Shore guy, or a South Shore guy, or did, did, were you... Uh... Well, we grew up, so we, uh, I lived most of my life when I was growing up in Wellesley. Right. And, uh, and then we moved uh, further in, you know, Belmont and Cambridge. Sure. I live in Sudbury, so... Not oh, yeah, far. right. Yeah. Um, and uh, any siblings? Yep, I have an older brother who works at Morgan Stanley. Did you feel the pull of academia, given your, what your dad did? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I did feel a, a strong pull uh, towards academia. And uh, I think I probably, if you would ask me for much of my time when I was growing up, I would have guessed that's where I was going to end up. Right. Um, and something to do with math or physics. And, uh, and I gave academia a good, a good world, but that's eventually not where I ended up. Right. Where did you, did you go to high school in Wellesley or just Yeah, so I, I went to public school through middle school and then my brother and I went to Exeter, which is a private school up in New Hampshire. Sure. And then uh, I did my undergraduate at, uh, um, at Harvard. That was Bob, Bob Howard's roommate. Yeah. And uh, because of that, I didn't perform academically, academically probably as well as I should have. Any, I, any, hugely, again, any again, hugely embarrassing stories you'd like to share about Bob? About Bob? Yeah. Uh, well, the whole room was sort of an embarrassment. <laughs> But we had a lot of fun. That was, those were great years. Uh, 
so I'll have to think about embarrassing stories about Bob. There's so many. But in any case, no, living with Bob, that was a great time. And I majored in chemistry as an undergraduate. But honestly, truthfully, I, uh, you know, I had worked very hard at Exeter. And uh, uh, I think, I mean, Exeter was a great experience. I learned a lot, but I didn't have a lot of fun. I really, really worked hard. And then I got to college and uh, uh, really let off a lot of steam, I would say and um, played soccer, and a lot of my effort went into playing soccer. And uh, I had a great time, and, and I actually don't regret anything about that experience. I majored in chemistry, and, but academics wasn't really uh, as, much, as strange as it sounds to go to a place like Harvard and not make academics uh, actually central to what I did. It was, there was a lot of other things going on for me at the time. Did you figure out what you wanted to do while you were there? No, I would say not. I, after I, so after Harvard, I got a job working at a, a contractor for NASA in, uh, at Goddard Space Flight Center um, uh, in Maryland. And um, that was just a great experience. I really, really enjoyed that. Had you been, um, did you, you know, interested in, in space? Always uh, interested in aerospace yeah. and space. Are you a Star that Trek was, fan? A huge Star Trek fan. I, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, too, and they were giving me shit about it in the car, so. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, well, that's good. I told them, are, are you a Next Generation person or an original series? Or Both. I watched, I've seen all uh, of them. I mean, I've seen the original series probably every episode, you know, five times. Yeah, Next yeah. Generation maybe only two Me times. Me too. My youngest, my youngest son is um, 11, and we're watching them together. And, oh, that's fun. Uh, he's a very smart kid, and he, he loves it. I was telling them the story of Tapestry and the Next Generation, where oh, yeah, right. Picard, um, you know, has to go back and change his life. And, yeah, that's uh, a great one. Um, great, great metaphor. But um, we could talk about this all day. Um, so, so you're, you're, that must have been exciting, I mean, to go and sort of take a step towards that world. Yeah, that was a, that was a big step because, you know, I had been a chemistry major, so it was, they, they weren't hiring chemistry majors typically at a place like that. And I met through a friend at Harvard, actually, someone uh, working at, uh, at this NASA contractor who was very much of an old school NASA guy. He had worked for NASA uh, back in the 60s when they were doing really exciting stuff. And... Uh, I mean, they're still doing exciting stuff, but it was particularly exciting back then. And we just bonded in the interview. It was just sort of, he could tell that I was someone that was actually, even though I hadn't studied it as an undergraduate, uh, that uh, something that I was clearly very passionate about and interested in. And sort of, he kind of, I would say, overruled other people in the group and insisted on hiring me. Huh. And uh, that turned out to be just a wonderful experience. I, I mean, uh, uh, you know, that was really the first place where I, I would say I kind of seriously applied physics, even though I had taken a bunch of physics classes at Harvard. Yeah. I actually seriously applied it and really cared about it a lot in that job. And I worked there for a couple of years. But at some point in a job like that, you hit kind of a glass ceiling, which is the people that were, uh, I was working for had higher degrees in physics, typically physics. And opportunities came up to promote me and, and uh, this guy, this guy was a mentor of mine said, I, I, although I think you would be perfect for it, I actually can't promote you above these other people with advanced degrees. Right. What, what were the kinds of problems you were working on there? Are they applied or are they theoretical? No, or? they were applied. They were, uh, I worked on, uh, uh, Goddard is responsible, typically the lead NASA site for unmanned spacecraft. So scientific uh, uh, satellites in, uh, Unmanned spacecraft that are earthbound, not interplanetary unmanned spacecraft typically are out of JPL out in California. Right. But uh, Earth orbiting unmanned satellites are managed out of Goddard. And so those are the missions I was working on, designing orbits for various scientific missions. Uh, I spent a lot of time working on uh, 
the theory, although it's not it's not especially deep theory, but and also the software for how to efficiently rendezvous unmanned spacecraft with a space shuttle, things like that. Wow, it was a lot of fun. Was it was it a conscious decision that you felt like that had run its course and you wanted to do something else, or? I mean, I became I would say. Uh, a little restless after a couple of years because I said there was sort of uh, seemed to be glass ceilings about where I could go. And also there was a feeling that it wasn't really cutting edge stuff. I mean, the problems I was working on were very practical and they're important. I mean, they're involved actual spacecraft. So they're very hands-on and practical, but they weren't uh, necessarily that deep. You weren't making, breaking new ground. You weren't making new discoveries. And so uh, I had sort of a hankering for that. You know, the scientist in me had a hankering for that. Where did that lead you? Uh, so I applied to graduate schools and, and eventually went to back to graduate school in astrophysics. At, at Harvard? At Harvard, yeah. What was that like? It was awesome. It was really, it was great. What, because of the people or the program or why? Well, you know, uh, the people are, uh, I made great friends and the professor that I ended up working with was terrific and the problems we worked on were very interesting. I mean, it's happen. kind of a cliche in academia that those are the best years of your professional life as a graduate student because you're completely supported. You don't have to worry about finding money. And uh, within limits, you get to pick on, uh, you know, you get to pick the problems you want to work on. Right. And so it's really great. And Harvard was kind of home to you at that point, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Maybe too much so, but not, actually I was happy. Yeah. Happy to go back there. Too much time in Boathouse? Or, yeah. Um, yep. Lots of time in Boathouse. Um, With Bot? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, a, that was a special place. Yeah. I went to business school there, so oh, yeah? I spent some time mm-hmm. uh, across the river anyway. Right. Um, all right, so what would you do after that with your shiny new uh, Harvard degree, astrophysics? Yeah, so I uh, got a job at a national lab, the, the Very Large Array, which is National Radio Astronomy Observatory, a research fellowship, uh, which is in New Mexico, and uh, went to work out there, and that was great. I was, I mean, I, again, I was enjoying myself. I mean, I, I had, a, a, I would say, a very meaty project, and it was uh, productive, and uh, living in New Mexico is interesting. Now that is that is um, it's it's searching the heavens at radio frequencies, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, have you ever seen Contact, the movie sure, Contact? Yeah, yeah. That's a telescope. In fact, I was the last astronomer on that that the telescope where Jodie Foster sends, spends her time. That's the sure. telescope where I was working. Oh wow! And I was the last astronomer on the telescope before she took over the move the telescope. They they took something like a week of time from the telescope, and I was the last astronomer to use it before they came along. Well, that's cool. And the crew was there. The movie crew was there. Setting up. And I love that movie. I think it's a, it's a fun movie. Um, it's my brush with astronomy greatness. I I met Carl Sagan when I was at oh, Cornell. Wow, that's great. And my professor was Jervon Terzian. Uh, he was also like a pretty prominent guy. But uh, obviously, the astronomy program at Cornell was was awesome. Yeah, um, a good program. How much of that work is is sort of monotony, and how much of it is? It's fascinating to a sort of sci-fi well, kid. From I mean, I'm sure it's like anything else. This is one of my... My dad was a guy that had like a long list of le- lectures that he would cycle through. And near the top of his list of lectures was that that's life. You know, that even for people that are in jobs that they love, uh, there's just going to be a certain amount of dirty work, getting the details done that's not uh, eureka moments. And... Um, so it was like that. You know, I think it was a good mix, though. You know, there, I had definitely had a eureka moment as a graduate student where we yeah. made a very important discovery. And uh, that was a truly a eureka moment where we had spent years collecting data and it literally came down to plotting a line on a piece of paper and having a certain shape. And it was uh, really a profound discovery that, uh, you know... Now, I read a little bit of This is the black hole. The black hole, yeah. So it was a huge moment. I mean, I ran down the hall with it and yeah. that... 
piece of paper is still up in the hall at Harvard. And what did you uncover specifically? Well, we, we were able to measure very accurately the mass of the supermassive black hole. At the time, the best measurement and, and by far the highest density. What, what matters when you're trying to detect black holes is the density. That's what distinguishes black holes from everything else. And uh, we were able to measure a much higher density than anyone had ever seen before. So at the time, it was by far and away the best evidence for supermassive black holes. Since then, the Galactic Center probably has passed it. Um, and so it was just, uh, you know, it was a great moment. It was incredibly exciting. And so you asked, was there drudgery? Yeah, there was a lot of drudgery. But uh, as a scientist, uh, and that continued on when I was working at the National Lab, it was definitely made up for by the excitement of, you know, you're actually discovering new things. You're figuring out things. Not, they're not always earth-shattering things like discovering a new black hole, but you're, you know, studying an object and figuring out things about it that no one else has realized, and you're sort of uncovering some actual real truths about the universe. So Incredible. It was, it was really great, I would say, yeah. Do you believe that... Um Space-time is folded, and the black hole is a is a catcher from one end to another. Or oh, you mean like uh, wormholes and I, stuff like I, that? Hundred percent convinced black holes exist. They uh, fit into the framework of general relativity. I think now, since I've left, there have been some questions. I mean, there's certainly lots of questions are raised by black holes, but I have no doubt that they exist, and I have no doubt that they are singularities, and and uh, that there are event horizons, and all that strange stuff is true. Uh, you know, whether or not you can uh, actually, if there are wormholes which sort of c connect two points in space-time, you know, uh, I don't know. Probably, no. probably, you know, as an astronomer, you, you eventually get to the place where uh, uh, the universe is so big that you simply can't, it, it's uh, difficult to imagine something. If something is possible, then it will be out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, is warp drive possible or not? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, if it were possible, someone you would think would have dropped by by now. Maybe. But, maybe, uh, maybe they have. Maybe Romulans are just around the corner. <laughs> right? um, all right. So did you still have the intention when you were working out at the telescope to um, you know, rejoin academia when that was all done? Or what, what, how, how did you end up here? You know, so being an academic, I've described the parts that were terrific and the parts, in fact, that I still miss. But, you know, uh, there are also parts that were sort of... Uh, less well-suited for my personality. I would say my thesis advisor, a great guy named Jim Moran, um, would always say that, you know, you're just, you just got to relax. You're, you're too impatient. It's going to work out for you. You're gonna, it's going to be great. And, and, but, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm a little impatient maybe, and the pace at which things unfold in academia sometimes seemed slow to me. So my frustration was mounting in some ways. I would say sort of two things were going on at once. Uh, one was that uh, my academic career was, was seemed to be proceeding okay. I had uh, job offers at, uh, towards the end of that research fellowship, I had job offers at Berkeley and Cambridge in England, and I was deciding between them. But I got a call from Renaissance Technologies inviting me to their colloquium. They have a, we here have a monthly colloquium series where we invite in scientists to speak about <clears throat> their work. And it's prim not actually primarily a recruiting tool. Very few people have been recruited to the company via that colloquium. It's more, uh, it's a perk really for the company and for the community. It's because uh, we can bring in really excellent people and give talks on a range of things, nothing to do with finance. Uh, what is Renaissance for the benefit of people who don't know? Oh, I'm sorry. It's a quantitative hedge funds. Yeah. Quantitative hedge funds. And, uh, 
And so because some of my work had been sort of high profile at that time related to this black hole and, I, and someone that I had known in astronomy invited me, who, who ended up working at Renaissance, left and went to Renaissance, invited me to give a talk at Renaissance. And I came here and gave the colloquium and, and was sort of, uh, so I said there were two things going on at once. One was my academic career was progressing, I think, at a reasonable pace. And on the other hand, there were certain things about it that were frustrating for me, as I mentioned. And I came here to Renaissance and uh, just found it to be an extremely interesting place and was very, very intrigued. And so that began, began a process that went on for some while. And uh, eventually I decided to leave academia and took the plunge. I'm a researcher here and all of the researchers have PhDs in math or primarily math or physics, uh, some statistics. So that was, uh, you know, a very big step. And... Um, Never looked back. That was quite a while ago. That was 17 years ago. It was a good move for me. I mean, the people that I work with are terrific. They challenge me. I still learn stuff daily. And uh, I'm stimulated intellectually, and it's hard, exciting work. And as my advisor pointed out, I'm somewhat impatient. And as you probably have seen just from spending an afternoon here, <laughs> uh, things happen very quickly here. Yeah. And so that particular itch is very much scratched by working here. Right. You, you thrive in the chaos a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned your dad's rules a while back. You know, you're a guy with a with a you know particular talent that's got value in a lot of different spheres, and uh, you've made some choices in your career that that um, you know forced you to maybe to rethink some of your initial intentions. And and for other people who have who have skills like that, any any advice about? Oh yeah, that's an easy one. Um, what, what is it? Uh, so my dad. Um, he gave me, for that particular question, he gave me lots of good advice, but uh, one piece of advice which I've thought about often and I often give to younger people is that so I was in my PhD and, and the first project I had turned out to not be such a terrific project. I didn't, I didn't really like it that much. You know, at Harvard, when you're getting a PhD in astrophysics, you have sort of a, what, what in some places you might call like a master's project and then before you moved on to your PhD project. And my master's project, I, it just wasn't a good fit. I wasn't enjoying it. And I was kind of blowing it off and not really, you know, I wasn't really applying myself. And my dad said, um, you know, I don't know if uh, you're going to be an academic when you grow up and you may not be an astrophysicist, but, but whatever you're doing at any given moment, do the best you can. Apply yourself completely. And so, uh, in other words, he was saying, I don't care if you don't like this project and I don't care if you're questioning whether or not we want to be academic. Whatever it is that you choose, you end up wanting to do. Trust me, it will, make, it will make things much easier if you apply yourself and do a good job of what you're doing now. And it may seem like obvious advice, but it, it, uh, it was the perfect advice at the perfect time. And, uh, and with hindsight, it's absolutely true. You know, we at a place like Renaissance, all the people we hire here pretty much are academics. And uh, we don't hire people unless they really excelled in that life. And even if they were academics, I interview plenty of people that... Uh, for which it's clear that even when they were getting their PhDs in math or physics, they intended to move on to finance or Google or Facebook. But they did a great job as an academic. And uh, in other words, uh, the excuse of there's, there's no good excuse for not doing a terrific job, you know, further on down the road. So uh, that was great advice. It was really great advice. I mean, and the other part of that advice that makes it great advice is that uh, you, you really get out of something what you put into it. And so if you're, whatever you're doing, I'll take a PhD because it uh, seems to be uh, the topic we're on. Um, 
you know, if you're not really committed to it and really digging into it and working hard at it, you're not going to get anything out of it. You're not going to enjoy it. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So at some point, you, you've got to just sort of do the work, get into it, immerse yourself in it. Uh, not only will it lead to good results, but also you'll, you're likely to get something out of it. You know, my dad had the expression is to succeed, you have to have what he called steel pants. Everyone's got to have steel pants. Sometimes it's going to come down to just sitting down, buckling down, putting your nose to the grindstone, and just doing what it takes and pushing through those times when the work is difficult or murky, what you're trying to do. And yeah. I mean, I think that's just, uh, that's advice you can use over and over again, in my opinion. What is Pivot? Uh, Pivot is a uh, it's an NGO, non-government organization that my wife and I, together with two other folks, uh, started, and it's delivering. Um, it's trying to deliver comprehensive healthcare in a very remote uh, corner of Madagascar, and um, it's something that uh, uh, you know. Much of my life seems like a bunch of sort of, at any given point when I look back on my life, a bunch of kind of odd alignments and serendipity and circumstances. But one way or another, I found myself over in this corner of Madagascar and uh, with a woman named Pat Wright who does uh, conservation biology over there and was looking to raise money to support that project. And Robin and I, my wife Robin and I supported that, but we really fell in love with the people in the area and there's a dire need for better health care over there. And so that began sort of an odyssey that that was, you know, something like seven years ago where that first uh, steps in Madagascar are taking. And now Pivot has something like 130 people working for it. And um, our catchment, the area where we're providing health care, I shouldn't say providing health care. It's we work uh, with the Ministry of Health. It's a we don't build a private uh, shadow health system. We work within the public health system because that's the only way for it to be sustainable. uh, we now in our catchment have something like, uh, I don't know, 100,000 people, and uh, we've treated 65,000 people or something like that. So uh, wow. it's come a long way. And, um, you know, it's something that the, the group that we're working with is a group, um, that, well, we started our own organization, but our co-founders are uh, from this organization called Partners in Health, which is up in Boston, uh, it's a terrific organization. It's done lots of healthcare work around the world. And, and the people that we started with, one of them is a scientist. He's got PhDs in economics and infectious disease. You know, there's a doctor. And it's a very natural thing for Robin and me because we're trying to bring our backgrounds in science to this project, to the problem. And so what that means is that uh, um, Pivot has sort of built into its DNA. We're collecting lots of data. And if you go on the Pivot website, you'll see that we have a dashboard of data where every month we collect statistics on how much money we're spending, what patients we're seeing, how many people we're carrying in our ambulance, which things are being effective and which are not being effective. Because for anyone that's considered getting into involved in this type of thing, there's obviously a terrific need around the world. There's always a nagging fear that you're putting money in, you don't actually know where it's going. And you aren't actually accomplishing, or at least not in some optimum way, what you're hoping to accomplish. Everyone agrees what the problems are, and everyone agrees there's a dire need, but uh, it's just a very difficult problem. In this case, providing health care in a system which is uh, you know, broken in many ways. And so we collect tons and tons of data, and, um, and uh, every month I get a report, uh, an email. I just got it last week from 
our um, team over there is saying, you know, the monthly dashboard has been updated and I bring it up and look through the data and it's sort of a highlight of my month because I can see the fresh data for uh, what types of patients we've treated, how many stockouts we've had in particular health centers and, uh, you know, how many kids have been entered into the malnutrition program on the one hand and how many have been have admitted and exited and things like that. So it's very much uh, um, a merging of uh, you know, a philanthropic desire that my wife have had, but our background's a scientist. My wife also was an astronomer. You're a busy guy, right? You have um, a big pile of kids yourself, and, um, and you've got your hands full here. Why is it important for people like you to dedicate as much time, energy, money um, to a cause like this as you, as you clearly have? Um, yeah, um, you know, that's a good question. It's a hard question. You know, philanthropy is a very personal thing, so I, I don't, whenever I think about this or talk about this, I, I'm, I, I don't want to judge. You know, some people don't, lots of people don't do this, lots of this type of thing. I think lots of people around here do do a lot of philanthropy, but they're very private about it, so I don't even know that it goes on. Right. So, uh, but... You know, my answer is going to be so, uh, it's obvious, it sounds almost canned, but uh, you go to a place like Madagascar and you see awful things. You know, you see, every time I visited over there, I would see awful, awful things. I would witness children dying for lack, uh, literally for lack of a catheter or because they couldn't get the kilometer to a health center. And... uh, you know, when I would push on that, when I, I'm naturally inquisitive and curious, and whenever I would probe as to why these things are going on, there's no particularly good answer, you know? And, and uh, in other words, there are no obstacles that, you, that one would encounter over there that seem insurmountable, right. and yet awful things are happening. And so for me, it's just, uh, it just seemed very natural. It seemed, uh, you know... Almost why not? I mean, I, I, you know, one question that a lot of people ask is why Madagascar? Yeah. Which is sort of a different question, but it's related. And my, I don't, also don't have a great answer for that. It, it's, right. uh, um, my response to that is why not Madagascar, really? I mean, right. there are places like Madagascar are all over the place where there's terrific need, not enough resources. And, uh, uh, you know, I think if you find yourself in a situation where you have the resources and the opportunity to make a bit, potentially make a big difference, then uh, it just seems uh, so obvious that you would do that. You know, I don't, uh, right. I don't I, I'm afraid that's not a satisfactory answer, but. Uh, um, no, I think it's an honest answer. And, and um, it seems like you're a guy who is, who is you know, you're, you've applied yourself against a series of puzzles, right? Looking for answers, like right. encountering complex questions and. Um, and trying to apply yourself and your particular talents in solving them, and this happened to be a problem that you encountered. And that's right. Um, it's not something we sought. You know, what I mean, yeah. it really isn't. That's kind of, but that's sort of the story of my life. I wasn't seeking to get into finance, and yeah, uh, it really feel I wasn't seeking to go work at NASA. That was through a connection of a friend in, at college. And similarly with Madagascar, we went over there. I certainly wasn't. Uh, I didn't know anything about Madagascar, and I, in fact, went over there to work to help out with a conservation biology project, not a health yeah. project. Yeah. But it's exactly how you frame it. You find yourself in a situation where there's uh, a big puzzle, and this, in, in fact, I'm, I'm, in, I'm sort of making this sound very antiseptic, but in fact, it's you know wrenching when you're over there. Sure, you're, sure. You're, when, you're, when you're in a place like that and you're not a tourist, when you're not 
insulated from what's really going on. It's, it's uh, you know, you see things that are, it's just difficult to stand by, especially if you feel like you can make a difference. It's funny because I, you know, what, what it's known for is, is the biodiversity. Right. And, oh, it's spectacular. And, um, and, and, but people don't talk about the people. I know. Um, it's ironic, you know. Yes, uh, that's right. That uh, there's some more concern over the lemurs than there is over the, over the human beings. You yeah, know, I know. It, it's, uh, it's true. You know, there's justifiably enormous concern over the, con- the, sure. the ecosystem over there. If you're being, uh, you know, very cold-hearted about it, then there's only one Madagascar ecosystem. Sure. But there are lots of people in the world. There you that's go. not how I feel about there, there it. There you go. But, uh, you know. Sure. <clears throat> um, when you look at um, what you've applied and what you've gotten out of this experience, you know, you mentioned the, the joy of getting that data. Um, is it something you would counsel, you know, people, even busy people, to seek out in their lives? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... You know, my life right now is sort of a balance between my family and uh, work and pivot. And uh, I really can't imagine life without pivot at this point. It's incredibly rewarding. It's really hard. Uh, We just had our our board meeting, our annual board meeting in New York. Bob was there. Bob Howard was on the board and a very valuable member of the board. Uh, It's very hard. Lots of, just like running a small company, I suspect, although I've never done that, lots of really hard decisions. Sure. Uh, but people issues in, and people issues the whole nine yards <laughs> uh, tight budgets and uh, but um, it's incredibly rewarding you know I mean uh, and you know for all it's, it's rewarding in the way I imagine building a small company is rewarding yeah uh, you're just building something from you know really from the absolute ground floor and but it's also and, and I've never experienced that before and I really enjoyed it And as Bob said when he got involved in the board, he said, I see this as an opportunity. I am looking at this, uh, getting getting involved because I see this as an NGO that's going to be disruptive in a particular space, just the way he would view a small potential, you know, startup company. We're really applying different techniques to this problem than really, in a lot of ways, that uh, pretty novel techniques in terms of the science and the data uh, that we're collecting. I mean... uh, uh, one sidetrack is a large chunk of our early budgets was to, was uh, a pivot was dedicated to generating baseline really statistically rigorous baseline studies in the district where we're operating. So before we treated a single patient or in parallel, we uh, did a, a statistically robust statistical survey of our district, very very broad survey, random sample that we'll now do every year going forward. So we're really going to be able to track outcomes in a way, and that's kind of unheard of. Right. Uh, in any case, so it's very it's very um, satisfying in that sense. But there's also the human side. I mean, uh, you know, we're, when I go over there, when if you went over there, you would, uh, you know, people will just come up to you. When I was visiting the district hospital on my last visit, this very well-dressed gentleman. For that, what that means is that he was wearing shoes and he had a collared shirt on. He was probably you know in his sixties. He just walked up to me at the hospital. Uh, and just kind of grabbed my hand and looked at You could tell he had practiced it. He looked at me in the face and he said, thank you. And then he just kind of stared at my face and he wouldn't let go. But he just, no, thank you. And uh, that's just very gratifying. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not, uh, I hope it doesn't sound like it's gratifying in a selfish or self-serving way. It's, no, no, it's gratifying no, no, no. in that, you know, you're really, so I feel like I'm having my cake and eating it too. I'm getting sort of a taste of what it would be like to be an entrepreneur, which is really exciting. Yeah. And I'm hanging out with people like Bob who are, teaching me a lot about that, but we're also, I, I think, really having a pretty profound effect on the lives of the people over there. 
If people want to support Pivot, where do they go? It's pivotworks.org. But if you search for Pivot Madagascar on the web, it'll, it's, uh, it pops right up there. All right, I'll take a look myself. Great. Appreciate you spending the time with us today. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so clear to me, Jim felt almost selfish about what he gets out of Pivot. Just to give you a sense from the Pivot website, pivotworks.org, um, total patients cared for by this organization, 60,235. Uh, amazing organization, amazing guy, you know, very simple set of values related to diligence and focus and a willingness to do the hard work. Uh, a guy who loves solving problems, solving puzzles and that and, and some remarkable talent and intellectual capability uh, has led him on quite a journey. Um, just a fascinating person. Uh, again, that website, uh, pivotworks.org, check it out for yourself and um, think about supporting them this holiday season. Um, I want to thank all of you for um, making uh, 2016 uh, the year that we got this podcast off the ground and for your support. Uh, please subscribe to it uh, if you have not already. I want to particularly thank uh, the folks at uh, G20 Ventures. Uh, G20 is early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Uh, also, my uh, work family at Actifio. Uh, Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Uh, I want to wish you a happy new year, and we will see you in 2017. Thanks.